In Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge, the miserly, mean, angry businessman, encounters four ghosts. The first one is the ghost of his now-dead partner, Marley. Then he encounters the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. You recall how Dickens describes the ghost of Christmas yet to come, do you not? It's covered in a shroud. The face is invisible to see. There's no sound coming from this ghost, no form of communication at all, except for a long bony finger that points in the direction it wants Scrooge to look. And you know where they are. The ghost has taken Scrooge into a graveyard, and the finger is pointing at Scrooge's own headstone. Scrooge is encountering his own death. He's seen his own end. In a, in a not, in a not very, in a, in a quite uh, explicit way, Dickens is inviting us to face our own death as well, to recognize that we all have but one life to live. And whether our death is 70, 80, 90 years in the future or sooner than that, all of us have but one life. And in light of that, Dickens is inviting us to consider our own lives. You remember the next day, when Scrooge wakes from this long night of visits of all these ghosts, it's Christmas Day, and he's, he's alive with grace and generosity in a way that he hasn't been since he was a young adult. And he's running about the, the town square in the village saying, good morning, Merry Christmas, and Merry Christmas to you, and Happy Christmas to you. He's just completely transformed and changed. And then he stops at a, at a, at a, to buy a, a turkey to take over to Tiny Tim's family. In fact, Many folks think that the reason why many of us will have turkey on Christmas Day is because Charles Dickens and his story, A Christmas Carol. Do you know what the, most, what the bird was served on Christmas Day prior to Dickens' novel? Anybody know? It was a goose. Thank God for Charles Dickens. <laughs> I'm not a big goose fan. Not, not, not at all. And he's running around, he's saying, Happy Christmas, Merry Christmas, all this, this complete transformation of his life. And then he says famous line, I'm going to live and celebrate the past, the present, and the future. It's an invitation from Dickens for us to be alive now. By the way, in response to something that Seth said a moment ago about our church's focus on community justice, if you read carefully through Dickens' lines and you read through his novel, you'll find that it's filled with biblical allusions to the work of justice. If you read it again this season, do that. It'll, it'll be a blessing to you, I, I guarantee it. Now, the Thessalonian church, 1,800 years before Charles Dickens, has no idea about how Christmas is celebrated in England in the 1800s. In fact, they probably don't have any idea about the stories of Jesus' birth either. That's for a sermon for another time. But what they do know, what they do understand, is that death looms for them. The scene in 1 Thessalonians 5 is set in a graveyard, and they're worried for their friends. They think the end of the world is about to happen. They think Jesus is about to arrive and to take all of his sheep with him, and they're wondering, our friends, as we talked about last week in the sermon, our friends are, they're, they're dead. What will happen with them? Will their, their bodies be left behind? Will they simply rot in the grave? What will happen with them? It's a sincere fear, concern, worry. Their anxiety is almost overwhelming, the Apostle Paul comes to them and reminds them of who they are. You are children of the light, 
For you, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Therefore, wrap yourselves in faith, hope, and love. Put on the armor, the breastplate of armor, uh, of armor and a helmet of, of, of hope. Faith and love are the breastplate that, that you need to wear. You have these gifts to, to put on. In fact, the translation we read from today is slightly inaccurate. In the Greek, it says you already have these gifts. You already have these. You're already wearing them. <clears throat> You're already practicing your faith, your hope, <clears throat> and your love. If that's true, and it is, then allow those gifts to dictate who you are and how you live in this world. It's, it's a display of beautiful pastoral skill. Rather than coming in and pointing his finger and saying, where's your faith? Why aren't you being more loving? Don't you have any hope? Rather than that kind of style, Instead, he names it and acknowledges that and then says, you already have these gifts that will allow you to face death, that will allow you to see that God's presence is already here in this moment now, and therefore you can have hope for the future and for those whose lives have ended here on this earth. It's a remarkable text, a remarkable illustration of how the church of Jesus Christ is called to live and be with each other, encouraging one another, he says. Encourage one another and build one another up. It's a beautiful promise for you, for me, for anyone who finds himself in, in, in a church. And know, know what it's not. It's not about how to get to heaven. It's not about, here's the things you need to do, and if you do these things, then you'll be able to buy a ticket and get, in, get into heaven. It's not that at all. It's about life and faith and hope and love today. I, I want you to hear this morning from uh, one of my favorite theologians. For, for my money, he's the finest theologian of the last 100 years, not just because he's brilliant in the way he, he theologizes, but he's also read by just as many evangelicals on the other side of the theological fence as he is by progressives like me on the other side of that fence, from the evangelicals. Anyone who can bring those groups together is, a, is an important voice in our world. Let's look at his words. Faith sees in the resurrection of Christ, not the eternity of heaven, but the future of the very earth on which his cross stands. See that last line? But the future of the very earth on which his cross stands. It's not about buying a ticket to heaven. It's about having faith in God now, in God's presence here, in this place, that we can, because of that presence, then have faith, hope, and love. Faith in the future. Hope in each other. And love that is grounded in action. You know this, don't you? Love is more than a feeling. Love is more than an emotion. It's more than your heart beating a little faster when you see the one you love. All those things are fine. But love is seen and made most real when we give a little bit of food to someone who's hungry, a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty, a bed for someone who has nowhere to lay their head. That's love in action. It might be as simple as sitting next to someone in their grief, not coming with simplistic advice, but just being present in their pain. That's love. And I would argue that's heaven at work in the moment named now. Uh, Richard Rohr says it better than I do. Let's put his words up there next. Christianity is not about avoiding punishment or gaining reward. It is about loving God and loving what God loves 
And what God loves is the whole of creation. What God loves is the whole of creation. Think about that. If you're working in your garden today and you're cleaning out the flowers and, and the shrubs and all that have, have faded away in the cold of the fall season, and you get your hands in that dirt, God loves that dirt. God loves it. If you go to the beach on vacation, maybe over the Thanksgiving holidays or over Christmas, make your way down to Florida and find you, yourself walking on the sand with your bare feet, God loves that sand, and God loves the ocean and the lakes. God loves the hills and the valleys, and even more than that, God loves your dog and, and your cat, and even more so than that, God loves you and me. God loves the whole of creation. It's a beautiful promise given to the world, given to us. And then, as I noted a moment ago, Paul ends this section of his letter to the, to the Thessalonians saying, encourage one another, build one another up, which you are already doing. Again, a brilliant pastor. It's not a lecture about, here's how to, how to encourage each other. It's not a lecture or a finger-pointing moment. It's continue, as you're already doing, to encourage and build one another up. We do a premarital uh, ministry here at our church for all the couples who are married by one of our pastors titled Prepare Enrich. It's an inventory of about 170 uh, questions or so that help couples identify their strengths and their growth areas in their relationship. It's a way of saying, okay, here are some of your, your strengths. Now, in light of those, here are some areas you need to focus on that you might need some help with uh, to, to grow into, and here's some tools for, for going forward on this. One of the tools that I emphasize when I lead couples through, through this inventory is something called daily compliments. The idea is quite simple. Give a daily compliment to your husband, to your wife, to your spouse, your lover, your, your best friend, whoever it is. Just do one compliment a day. It sounds simple, but it's brilliant. It's not my idea, but it's a brilliant idea to just do one compliment a day. I mean, when I, when I walk out on a Sunday morning and Julie sees me in a, in a suit and dressed up and ready to go and she happens to say, hey, you look good today, I, I'm not embarrassed to say my shoulders go back a little bit, my heart does beat a little bit faster, my soul feels good, and I'm ready to take on, the, I'm ready to take on whatever comes next. One compliment a day. It doesn't sound like much, but at the end of the year, that's 365. And think about it. If you do two compliments a day, What's two times 365? It's, it's a lot. It's, uh, think of it. Uh, at the end of the year, you've given, what was it, 730? Twice as many. Twice as many. Yeah, twice as many. 730. You, you've complimented your, your friend, your lover, your wife, your spouse, your husband, whoever it is, over 700 times. It's so simple. And the reason you do that is so that when something hard comes up, when, when, your, when your spouse or your friend or your lover says, we need to talk. I, I've never had a conversation with those words that didn't point at something difficult. But you've built up all this capital. You know, Julie and I have a savings account uh, with the pension fund of the Christian church. That's where my pension is held. And they also have an account there where you can, uh, on a regular basis, drop money into the account. It earns a nice uh, uh, amount of interest and does very well. And, and we just, every month, we just keep putting money in there, putting money in there, putting money in there. The interest grows. The, the amount of money grows. And then the idea is, 
if something comes up, some medical issue or some other bill that's unexpected, well, there's, there's some money there. It's the same way this daily compliment idea w works. When something needs to be faced, when something critical happens, or there's criticism to be given and received, well, you've built up this capital that allows you to do that. It's really a, a quite brilliant idea. I recall um, when I was in Kansas City, hiring a consultant to come work with our staff to, to help us see what our strengths were and what might be some growth areas uh, for us to, to focus upon. I'll never forget the first line of the report that the consultant, her name was Susan, the first line that Susan wrote in the report that was given to me and to the personnel committee. It said, the human eye is drawn to the negative. She said, please, and this part I'm paraphrasing, she said, please do not skip ahead to the growth area at the end of this report. I've named several areas in your staff that are functioning very, very well. Please see that and recognize this and thank God and thank God's presence in your church's life because there's some great things happening. Then when you're done going through all that, then <clears throat> read the concerns that I'm naming for you. There are not very many. But when you let recognize how much strength you have, you'll be ready to take on the areas of growth that I'm presenting before you. Too often in our lives, not just in the church, but in our, in our lives, she's right. The human eye is drawn to the negative. And oftentimes we rush to the negative out of anxiety. It's anxiety that skips the positive, pushes forward to the negative because we're looking to, to, for a quick fix. We're also looking to avoid conflict. I know that sounds paradoxical, but when we rush through all the other stuff, skip over some of it, and get to the negative, we're reacting out of anxiety to try and quick it, fix it as quick as we can. Let's stop everything else we're doing and let's fix it now, rather than recognizing all the strengths that we have carefully. And now, in light of that, how shall we approach this issue? I confess to you, by the way, that there was a time in my life when I was a very anxious, driven, worry-driven person. I used to be, I, I would encounter a pastor with great skill as a, as a pastor and a writer and a, and a preacher, and, and I would just be overwhelmed with anxiety. I'm never going to be like her. She's got so many skills, and she's so talented. I just, I just don't measure up at all. Or I'd see somebody else who's doing really well in life and, and has a beautiful home and the fancy car and all that. I'll just think, boy, I just, I'm never going to be there either. There was a time in my life, believe it or not, when I used to worry about my hair. Seriously. I used to have red hair, just sort of strawberry blonde hair, and it was wavy, and I could never get it to exactly lay just right. Thank God, I just run the clippers over it three times a week these days, and I don't worry about it anymore. And I'm still learning. I'm still learning how to get over this anxiety and worry. I'm doing better, I believe, especially when I, I consider something my, 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 my favorite preacher, John Ortberg, likes to say. Worry is contagious. It's self-perpetuating. If you're going to worry, worry with someone. I, I love that idea. Worry with someone. That's what we're invited to do in church. We're invited to bring our worries here, to bring our anxiety, to, to bring our fear, our grief, our sadness, our, our sorrow. To, to bring it here and lay it upon the, the chancel and, and to find a friend and wrestle together with whatever that issue might be. That's what Paul's inviting the Thessalonian church to do, to bring their worry, fear, and anxiety and recognize together that we are children of the light. 
My friend Julie Richardson is a senior vice president with the Pension Fund of the Christian Church, an organization where I serve on the, on the board of directors. I'm in my second year now as a member of the, the board there. And I've really been glad to reconnect with my friend Julie. I first met her when she was applying to be on my summer camp staff uh, back in the 1990s when she was a, coll a college kid. It's been fun to watch her graduate from college, move on to seminary, become an ordained pastor, an author, and now she's a senior vice president at the pension fund overseeing what's called the Ministerial Relief and Assistance Fund. It's a very important work. It's, a, it's money that's collected and received. My wife, Julie, and I donate to that fund every, every year. And it's there and available for a pastor when he or she is going through an emergency. It might be a medical one. It might be a, a physical one. It might be a concern in, in, in their home, whatever it might be. It's not about the church. It's about the pastor and his or her family. She told me a story recently about a pastor who called her to say, I just want you to know how much it means to me that you've been able to help my husband and I and our young daughter. She's a pastor of a small church, gets by on a, on a limited income. Her daughter is very, very ill, needs this special kind of treatment every day of her life, every day, and it's quite expensive. And the church has reached out, the church through the pension fund has reached out to provide assistance to this fine minister, this wonderful pastor. But she called Julie to say, more than the money, just knowing you're there, just knowing I can pick up my phone and give you a call, just knowing that I can send you an email and that you will pick up the phone and reply or you will send a reply to my email, knowing that you'll hear my fear and my worry gives me hope. Julie reminded me of a story in the Old Testament of Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And while they're on their way, they're attacked by the Amalekites. <clears throat> Moses says to Joshua, the general of his army, get your army organized and go and respond to, the, to this attack upon us. And while you do, he said, I'll be on the hillside with my arms raised as a reminder to you that God is present among us and with us. Joshua takes his men out into battle. The battle is going well for them, but Moses' arms become tired. He's not able to hold them up. And the way the story goes is the Amalekites then get the advantage. They start pushing back on the Israelites. And so Moses' friends come, two of his friends. They find a large stone for Moses to sit on on this hill. And then one friend goes on one side. And do you know the story in the Bible? Another one goes on the other side. The one lifts up his right arm. The other on his left lifts up his left arm, and the Israelites push their way to victory. Julie says, that's the church. That's us at our best. When a friend comes and stands beside you in your grief, when a friend comes and stands beside you in your fear and your worry, when a friend sits with you and listens, doesn't offer cheap or silly advice, but simply listens and gives you a place to be heard, that is the church at its best. What did the Apostle Paul say to the Thessalonians? What is he saying to us? Encourage each other. Build one another up like you're already doing. I've quoted Krista Tippett before. Her words are appropriate for this moment. Hope is a muscle. Hope is a practice. Hope is a choice. When we choose hope, our faith is nurtured in that choice, and our love is grounded in faith and hope together, giving us all that we need 
to face whatever the world brings our way. Amen.